0: Hundreds of residents in the small free state town Jagersfontein have been left homeless after a diamond mine dam burst and flooded the area on Sunday. President Cyril Ramaphosa visited the area on Monday and promised to provide support to those affected. Government does move slowly, but what we are going to be able to do here is to bring on board other partners, and uh, indeed the Mining Council has said that they are willing work with us, so a combination of private sector, NGOs and government working together should be
1: able to produce really good and positive results for the people here.
0: Some residents have been left with just the clothes on their backs and many are now asking if this disaster could have been prevented. I'm Catherine Rice, a journalist for News24's Multimedia Department, and you're listening to The Story, where we'll talk to journalists about the biggest story of the week. This week, we're talking to News24's Ivan Pios, who has been on the ground in Fontaine, and later, we'll talk to News24's Lisa Steyn. Ivan, thank you for your time. How many people have been affected by this disaster?
1: Okay, so, Catherine, when we spoke to the Harib District Municipality, um, they had a meeting with Minister Gwede on, on Tuesday. So, they informed us that at least 300, just under 400 people were displaced and they were housed at shelters and lodges in Bloemfontein, drones, and around. For now, the numbers that we have is, um, I also went through the latest test now. It's one, one person who died, a 70, 70-year-old 70 man. They are still looking for 40 50-year-old woman. We also were informed that 74 patients were admitted to Diamond Hospital in Yakut for 10 for observations, and they were discharged. So two people, including a pregnant woman, were still in hospital. And then five, like five others were um, admitted at various other hospitals like Philanomy and Albert and Zulach in, in Bloemfontein.
0: Ivan, can you describe what you saw when you visited Jagersfontein this week? Just how bad is the damage?
1: When we when we drove in, we, you could see the extent of, of the muddy, the grey muddy waters and how it spread across the open field. Could see that it completely uh, submerged bridges. By the time we got there, the the mud was still quite very it very very slippery and wet. And also the extent of of the damage um, when you drove into and Then you could see on the sides, JoJo tanks that were swept away. Even cars, a few vehicles that were swept away on their roofs as you entered it, the uh, the township of, of, of Charnsville you could see that the houses that were completely destroyed I know there was uh, the area that stood out for me there was a place where we interviewed a man who was, who was just walking around and he said he was searching for his wife he hasn't seen his wife since Sunday so he's going through the houses looking for her. and then he, he pointed at The specific area and and told me, if you look now, there's nothing. But before this incident on Sunday, there were 10 houses there. And then when we we walked closer and and went to go have a look, we could only see foundations of what was left of those 10 houses. You could clearly see pointed out here. You could see here was a kitchen. Maybe this was a a, a living area, living space. But all of it was swept away. And completely destroyed, we also managed to speak to uh, a local mechanic who said he was working on on cars for clients uh, his clients are in bronzepur sama in Iburg, and those cars were also swept away he We also found him on the scene Monday walking around assessing the damages of the vehicles, but he said they are beyond repairable and He said his biggest fear was was then phoning. These clients and informing them that your car is beyond repairable. It's a complete, a complete write-off. I also found the FPCA on, on the ground and I managed to speak to one of the inspectors who had just rescued a cat and he was busy trying to clean the cat, but the cat was covered in mud and he told us that more than 500 animals were, were rescued and a lot of them had to be euthanized. Because of the extent of the sludge and the the waters in their lungs, so yeah, and also farmers. We had farm. Uh, we spoke to a farmer who, who said some of his cattle, the cattle that um, were supposed to go in auction next week, that's completely wiped out. As they were rescuing cattle on the ground, they they took them in like your your sheep. They took them into the their their house and washed them off with hot water in in their baths up. Um, and covered them in blankets and fed them because they said uh, a lot of the cattle were disorientated. And what stood out for me was when we went to a different section of of the township. We saw or spoke to a pastor um, and he said early Sunday morning when the waters came flooding towards their houses, he went out, he, he alerted his kids and told them just to run for their lives. And then he went door by door, throwing stones onto the roofs of his neighbors to alert them to run for safety. And he said he he, he got into his truck and reversed it out of his yard. And then as he looked back, he just saw his most beloved star, the Audi A4, just being swept away by the flood. And then his heart broke and realized that this is what we are losing now, our, our prized possessions and our valuables. Everything is just being swept away.
0: Ivan, what kind of aid is being provided to residents, particularly when it comes to housing, and who is coming to their rescue, if anybody?
1: We know that the Red Cross um, and Meals on Wheels, and also uh, your gift of the givers, they were on the ground delivering basic essentials, including mattresses. I know the Red Cross delivered food parcels and mattresses. They also delivered the uh, 250 more uh, mattresses that is uh, soon to be delivered. Your customer the it has been on the ground since the beginning, making sure that um, they trucks loads of, of bottled water, blankets, mattresses, clothing, clothing, food for cooking, hygiene items, uh, your sanitary towels and diapers. So they, as we've seen a lot of their trucks uh, moving between the areas and, and providing basic needs for for the affected residents and we also found out that some of we went to go see some of the affected or displaced residents. They were being housed at Sandstone Sleeper State um, just about a few kilometers outside Bloomfontein. It was, it was quite shocking to see how many small children there were and it just shows you the, the devastation of this incident and how it has affected a lot of these uh, residents. And we spoke to one guy who was barefoot and basically told us, this is all I have. I don't have my ID, no food, no clothes, no valuables left. And that's all he had on. And that's, he said, basically, that's all he has now. So they're really hoping for government to provide the basic needs for them.
0: Ivan, are residents angry? I mean, do they feel this could have been prevented?
1: We spoke to the mayor of Copanong, local municipality. And then the interesting part about his his interview was a year ago in February twenty twenty one, he warned that should this dam wall collapse it will wipe out families and ruin lives. And he's been very vocal about campaigning in in the townships and in in Fontaine, campaigning and calling for, for the mining company to do something about this uh, the sailing dam and look we we are sitting with a situation now where this has become a reality where the dam wall has has collapsed and and it has ruined life and he has he has he has warned about this and he said um, spoken to the community and they are very, very angry and upset about this and saying that they have been complaining and nothing has been done about this.
0: Very, very tragic consequences there. Thank you so much for your time. That was Ivan Pios, News 24 reporter. We're now joined by News 24 journalist Lisa Stain. Lisa, thank you for your time. Can you tell us about Yargos Fontaine Developments, the mining company at the center of this tragedy? Who are the owners and how long have they owned the mine for? So,
2: Yargos Fontaine is actually one of the oldest diamond mines in South Africa, and it was mined for over 100 years until the Beers closed it in the early 1970s. So the mine was actually never reopened, but it was the dumps or uh, what the industry calls paling facilities that were sold to Yagos Fontaine Developments in 2010. So Yagos Fontaine Developments was incorporated by a consortium. And what we know is that this consortium comprised of a company called Superkolong another mining company called Sonop Diamond Mining. And we also know that Johan Rupert's Renit uh, also held a stake. It does get a bit complicated, though, because um, we don't know how those shareholdings have shifted over time exactly. We do know that uh, Renit sold its interest out just months ago to a global diamond cutting polishing company um, for about 20 million euros. That company is called Stargems. So that's what we know so far.
0: And Lisa, will the mine owners be assisting victims or is it not really their responsibility?
2: So and fontaine Development have pledged 20 million rand to help with the disaster relief and they said they'd already spent 600,000 of this. At this point in time, we don't know who is responsible for the incident exactly. So I think it's just a sign of good faith. The, uh, the Minerals Council has also launched a relief fund requesting its members to contribute funds, and they're hoping to raise about fifty million. Afri Forum has also opened up a fund and calling for donations.
0: As you say, we don't quite know yet who is responsible for this disaster, but it could be a combination of responsible parties. If, if you know, it's established who was responsible, what action will be taken against them, and where does government fit in?
2: Well, government uh, departments are now collaborating uh, to try and probe this incident and find out the root cause. And that presumably would dictate who is then held accountable. We do know there was a legal tussle over these mine dumps back when they were first sold. And the court at that time determined that these tailings do not fall under the Department of Mineral Resources jurisdiction. And, you know, basically saying that De Beers, it was De Beers' asset to do with as it plea. So the Department of Mineral Resources hasn't been regulating these activities um, because it's not technically mining that's going on. And so if it were just an industrial activity, the Department of Labor theoretically uh, should have had o- oversight. That department, however, keeps referring our questions back to the Department of Mineral Resources. So that's where we are. It is though, important to note that the Department of Water and Sanitation had been mon- monitoring these tailings for, for a few years now, and they, they did have some knowledge of what was going on there as to who will be held responsible, we will have to see.
0: And Lisa, how big is the damage that has been caused in RAND terms, um, in terms of initial estimates?
2: haven't seen any definitive numbers. Um, you know, Normally, if it's something that happens to a, a listed company, you would have those kinds of numbers immediately. I think the sort of um, relief funds that we're talking about gives you a small indication of what we're talking about. I, I would speculate it will run into... Many, many zeros. Millions, hundreds of millions, maybe even billions.
0: There have been claims that mine management ignored red flags over the years. Can you tell us more about that and their response to those allegations? This goes back to what I mentioned about the Department of Water,
2: which had been monitoring these tailings. And they did raise a number of issues with the company about non-compliance with this water license. And that, those contraventions included, you know, disposing more volumes uh, into the tailing stamps than they were permitted to in terms of their license. So from the document the documentation I've seen and the engagements I've sort of had, it, it does seem that, you know, the issues were raised and the company was asked to address some problems. At one point, uh, the company was even asked to draft an emergency preparedness plan in relation to these tailing facilities. But... It seems that the department perhaps took a more collaborative approach, because at the end of the day, these tailing storages were still being used despite the flags being raised. And so I think the company was responding to the department, but the department was also giving um, concessions and extensions up until this happened.
0: Lisa, has there been any indication yet of the impact on the environment? Um, could the fallout from the disaster spread further than Fontaine through pollution of the wider water system?
2: Look, yeah, there's obviously concern about the contents of that sludge which poured out of the dam. Uh, Yarkeson Tain Development has categorically stated that it is not toxic. And some geologists have affirmed that the processing of these sorts of tailings would not typically require that harmful chemicals be used. But you never know. So, with the level of interest in this issue, I'm sure we will know soon enough
0: what the truth is. we will certainly be keeping a very close eye on that story. Thank you so much for your time. That was Lisa Stain, News24 journalist. That's all we have time for this week. I'm Catherine Rice. Join us again next week for The Story.